Coming up on Philosophy Talk, minds and matter. You know, minds are nothing but matter. Sure, but what matter? You mean the brain, right? No, an octopus's mind is distributed throughout its whole body. Oh. I wonder what it's like to think like an octopus. We're kidding ourselves if we think that questions like that have simple direct answers at this stage, where we can just say, okay, these guys are conscious, these guys aren't. Where is my mind? Where is my mind? Could humans ever know what it's like to be an octopus? Could an octopus ever know what it's like to be a bat? Could an octopus ever know what it's like to be you? I think that our language begins to let us down when we start to look at the diversity of ways that animals live. Our guest is Peter Godfrey Smith, author of Metazoa, Animal Life and the Birth of the Mind. I really think the lights on, lights off thing is trouble. Minds and matter. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. How did evolution first produce minds? How can we tell which living things are conscious? I mean, what would it be like to be a shrimp? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from our respective living rooms via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, we're thinking about minds and matter. You know, minds are a really weird thing. I mean, here we are, creatures of flesh and blood and atoms and stuff, but somehow we're having a conscious experience of the world. How does that happen? Well, I hope you're not expecting me to solve the mind-body problem right here and now. <laughs> but I think whatever the relationship is between our minds and our bodies, whether it's my mind or a shrimp's mind or whatever, they're both made of essentially the same stuff. So you disagree with Descartes then? You don't think minds and matter are two fundamentally different substances? Right. I just can't get behind Descartes. He thought minds are immaterial souls, pure consciousness, governed by reason. And he thought bodies are just physical stuff or matter, pushed and pulled around by natural forces. Yeah, I mean, if minds and matter are so fundamentally different from each other, how are they supposed to interact? Yeah, this is exactly the problem with Descartes' theory. And he never really came up with a satisfactory answer. He also had a really weird view of non-human animals and claimed they have no minds. Oh, right. Yeah. What did he call them? Fleshy automata? Quick, cover Blossom's ears. Oh, poor puppy. Oh, don't worry, Blossom. We're not talking about you. Descartes obviously never had any pets. Or he would know that dogs and cats and birds and many other creatures really do have minds. They have lives that they experience. There's something it's like to be a dog and to live a dog's life. Yeah, Descartes was definitely wrong about mammals, and, and maybe some birds and some cephalopods, like octopuses. But, but I don't know about fish or insects, let alone a whole host of simpler life forms. So don't you think fleshy automaton is a pretty good description of, say, I don't know, a fruit fly? Wait, you don't think that fruit flies have minds? I didn't realize you were such an animal elitist. <laughs> fruit flies can navigate mazes and track a moving target. They're actually quite smart. Well, yeah, and so is my phone. But that's not the same as being conscious. I mean, all life forms exhibit some kind of intelligence, even plants. They, they sense where the sun is. They grow toward the light. Ah, but plants don't have brains, and, and fruit, fruit flies do. Maybe insects don't have the same kind of rich mental lives that humans have, 
but who's to say there's not something it's like to experience the world the way a fruit fly does? Ah, so you do have an answer to the mind-body problem. You said that plants don't have brains and fruit flies do. So, so clearly what you're saying is that what an animal needs for conscious experience is a brain. Well, I don't know. Maybe a brain isn't necessary. Maybe you just need a nervous system of some sort. So, so you think even creatures who don't have brains might still be conscious? Don't you think that's too generous? I mean, I mean, doesn't there need to be a certain level of biological complexity for conscious experience to be possible? Well, yeah, complexity, sure. But why does it have to look like a brain? Maybe different minds evolved in different ways. What do you mean? Well, it's easy to see that animals like you, like chimps or whatever, have minds and inner lives. They're related to you. Hey, what are you trying to insinuate? Now, look, they're my relatives too. We all evolved from similar ancestors. But there are all kinds of creatures with inner lives, including creatures that are completely different from us. Fruit flies, squids, tardigrades. Just because they're really distant cousins doesn't mean they can't have conscious experiences. Well, you know what, Ray? I'll admit you've really piqued my curiosity now. I think that's a genuinely exciting idea to learn more about the inner lives of animals who are distant from us on the evolutionary tree. Though, to be honest, I'm still not entirely convinced about fruit flies. Well, I'm glad you've opened your mind, even if it's just a little. You'll be excited to hear that our guest this week is Peter Godfrey Smith, a philosopher who spends a lot of time underwater observing, and sometimes interacting with, all sorts of weird and wonderful sea creatures. I can't wait. But in the meantime, we humans love to rank which animals we think are the smartest. And if you do a quick search, you're probably going to find corvids, the family of birds that includes crows, ravens, and magpies, up there in the top five. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shireen Adel, to find out more about their cognitive capabilities. She files this report. So where are we right now? Uh, so we're at uh, 15th and Franklin. Okay, and we're looking we're west, lo right? <laughs> we're looking west. We're looking towards uh, Civic Center, towards uh -huh. City Hall. I'm here with Adrian Cotter. He started a project about five years ago mapping out raven's nests in the San Francisco Bay Area. Today, we're scouting them out in the heart of downtown Oakland. If you look up, it's the white and brick building near the top. And in, the, in that corner, there's a nest in there on that ledge. Adrian started looking for raven's nests after he saw a pair of birds and their young on the Federal Building in San Francisco. It was totally something I wouldn't have expected. I wouldn't have expected ravens to be uh, making nests on buildings. When he did a little more exploring, he discovered that crows and ravens actually thrive in urban environments. So far, he's found over 100 raven's nests in San Francisco alone. Uh, I've been all over the city. In the last 50 years, corvid populations in cities have grown a ton. In the 70s, the Golden Gate Audubon Society only counted a few dozen crows in the Bay Area, and ravens were a rare sight. Since 2010, though, they've counted over a thousand crows every year and hundreds of ravens. So why are these birds flocking to cities? Because we've created this wonderful habitat for them. Not only do they make nests in our buildings, they also like to eat our garbage. But they're not like other urban birds. They're also really smart about it. They store their food and make it really hard for other animals to find. So they'll often like fake putting things in places. There's definitely like awareness of other, how other things think about what they're doing. Crows and ravens also recognize human faces. 
If you piss them off, they'll harass you. And if you give them food, they'll find things to give you in return. Like this one story Adrian told me about a little girl who accidentally dropped crumbs for crows on her way in and out of her house. And like the next day she was there, the crow brought her a gift. So she started to leave them more food and collected the gifts they brought her. Her name is Gabby Mann, and she was asked about it in a podcast called The Bittersweet Life. What is this that we're looking at? It's kind of like a keychain, and this is a heart from them. It's showing me how much they love me. When crows interact with us and the world we live in, we study them and we see familiar behavior. They make tools, they play with each other. Crows are social creatures, and it's easy to think maybe they are self-aware, just like us. But one thing is for sure, they have a unique ability to adapt their lives to our world. There's Russell Crowe, Cameron Crowe, Crow Diddley, Hume Cronin, Gregory Peck. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shireen Adi. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.